Usually for Orion, I, I switch to refractors. I really like refractors for this time of year. Um, just a little wider focal length or, you know, a little wider angle shot, uh, generally at focal lengths between four and 600. That's, that's what I, I try to recommend to people really, you know, capping it at about, you know, it's like, like, uh, Bernard's loop is, I mean, it goes around the entire constellation. The thing is huge. So it's nice having a big wide field of view where you can see like the, the witch's head nebula, or, you know, you can get sometimes even get the horse head nebula and Orion nebula in the same field of view, which is incredible because it really gives, you know, some context to not just scale and size, but you know, where these things are relative to each other within the constellation. Every year I shoot the horse head, every single year. So I'm one of those people contributing to the 300,000 horse head and Orion Nebula images that are gonna go out. The skies of February is our topic in this episode and, and Dustin and I will discuss some of the more interesting objects that are up this month as well as how to observe and image them. So let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay, so we're going to talk about the skies of February, February. God, that word. <laughs> that word is so impossible for me. This entire, yeah, this entire month, I dread going into the next one because it says I can't say that word. It's also my least favorite month. And I don't know why it's my least favorite month. I think it's because it's always bitterly cold during that time, whenever, wherever I happen to be. Yeah, thank God freezing. it's a short month. Yeah, yeah. That's probably because why it's the shortest month. Everybody's just like, come on. I know. Let's go, Feb man. Let's get the February. spring happening here. But the skies are usually pretty good, uh, aren't they? I mean, I don't know what they're like out in California, but in Florida, the skies here are ab about as good as they're ever going to get in the months of January and February. So, um, Is that the time? February is the time, huh? Well, it's yeah, that it sort of spans. It starts getting bad again late March, but from, say, I don't know, November through February, it's usually pretty clear because it's also our dry season. Then in April, the, the thunder, thunderstorms kick in and the, uh, the skies don't start getting clear until about after midnight. So, But it is a good time for observing. The nights are long and there's lots of cool stuff to see, which I guess is what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely good for, uh, you know, CCD imaging or really any kind of imaging, you know, you don't, it's not like uh, June where you've got your camera overheating and creating all that thermal noise, but you got it nice and cold by default. Do you not cool your cameras uh, any other way, but with just ambient air? No, I, I do. So I use uh, cooled CCDs. So they have, uh, they have a couple of two stage cooling where, you know, they have a passive cooler, which is just basically the heat sink, right? But then they also have fans pulling heat away. Oh, okay. So you have fans going, but it is still, uh, is, you don't like have water going through it or any of that stuff to cool. No, down no, no. Chip. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that, well, you know, it, it, you, you laugh, but I had one that did that. I had it built in a, uh, I had a five gallon bucket of water that, and an aquarium pump that pumped in water through the back of the CCD chip and, uh, it worked really well actually, but it was a pain and I was tripping over it a lot. So. Yeah, um, no, guess. it's, uh, I mean, the cameras still have the capability. They still have the plugs for it and everything, but uh, I've never used it. And most people don't because yeah, it can cause okay. a lot of issues too, you know, running. <laughs> yeah, water and electronics don't generally <laughs> yeah. get along well. Right, <laughs> Although, right, exactly. I think you're supposed to use like antifreeze or something similar. You're not supposed to use water proper, but uh, either way, liquids and electronics aren't generally a good idea together, especially in the dark when you're stumbling around in the, yeah. in the observatory. Right. <laughs> So we're talking about uh, February. We're talking the about the skies February. of February. We're gonna do this <laughs> all it, episode, folks. Let's so just get used to it. February. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it really is a good. Uh, it's a good month for imaging this whole time of year. I think because for one, it's dark. Like this is astronomy season. It's dark. You've still got all the emission nebulae up, at least for now. And uh, I mean, everything's in the sky right now. Everything. And um, it's, 
you've got the what is it dark at six o'clock five forty five or something yeah so, yeah it's nice and dark by then and you can head out there and uh, start looking at the I guess the Orion Nebula and the Orion the con- the constellation of Orion is starting to be well above the horizon by then at least here well, this here. is where social media is about to get flooded with Orion Nebula shots and Horsehead Nebula shots <laughs> that's right look what I did look what I took <laughs> there will be two hundred and forty six thousand Orion Nebula shots a day. For the you know next, what I like yeah. are those time lapse shots that people do. You know those whole sky things where the sky is moving across. I love those shots. So I bet we'll see yeah. a lot of those of Orion too. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is that I, as much as uh, as everybody posted, I still think that Orion's one of the best targets in the sky because it, no matter what level you're shooting at, it's challenging. If you're just getting into it, you know it's it's kind of an entry level target in that it's bright. You can do it with pretty much any system. And it's easy to find all those things and you can get a shot. And it's really the first like color shot that most people get where you can see, you know, uh, stellar nursery for the first time. But then even advanced imagers, you really have to do a lot of HDR work and shoot it with multiple exposures and really combine it well to pull out all that faint nebulosity and still hold the core to where you can see the trapezium stars because it's just so bright at the core and so faint everywhere else. It's a really challenging target to do right. That's right, and it is it is so bright that you can, uh, on a on a reasonably dark sky, I would say I don't know, Bortle five ish, something like that. You could see it with your naked eye uh, if you you know again use the famous averted vision kind of thing. You can kind of see a blob there in the belt of Orion. Yeah, um, and I know that works. I know it does, but every time I hear it, man, it just, <laughs> I know because you don't have me. any. You don't even know yeah. what it means, man. You're like, yeah, <laughs> averted vision. Yeah, I don't see nothing that way. But I you don't can. know what you're you, talking. It, it, it's basically a hallucination, right? You're like, <laughs> I have, yeah, exactly. It's wishful, th- it's it's like, wishful thinking. I had my eyes closed, man. I, you wouldn't believe how clear it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I had my eyes totally shut, man. And there it was. And I love when glory. people are bragging about it. They're like, dude, my averted vision is so good. I was averting so hard. I saw it during the day. I averted that, man. <laughs> I can see the Orion Nebula during the day, man. During I was the averting, day. <laughs> I was averting so hard. That's right, man. I, I'm out of, in the summertime looking at the Orion Nebula, all you losers. <laughs> out there oh <laughs> yeah. gosh it is a favorite though for it this is. time of year as you point out february is one of the greatest months for looking at the orion nebula as you say it's high in the sky um so when you go out and observe it uh, or image it i guess i should say what's your setup man what do you do uh right now i have a lot of scopes running we're doing some testing some uh super secret testing on uh new products that we've developed actually and so i've got a lot of systems going but usually for Orion, I, I switch to refractors. I really like refractors for this time of year. Um, just a little wider focal length or, you know, a little wider angle shot, uh, generally at focal lengths between four and 600. That's, that's what I, I try to recommend to people really, about you know, capping it about like that. Yeah. So somewhere between, you know, one of my refractors is I use a VSD a lot. It's a Vixen VSD. It's a, uh, it's a hundred millimeter refractor. Yeah, yeah, it's four inch scope. So I mean, it's not big. It's what twice the size of a can of tennis balls, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not big, but uh, it's just fast. It's f three point eight. I mean, that's camera lens fast. Yeah. And so, you know, whereas my plane wave, you know, I'm shooting 30, 45 minute exposures. With this, I generally go out there and I'll do like 10, 10 minute or five minute exposures and still get really great detail in these big wide angle field of views. And for Orion, especially, I mean, everything in Orion is big. You know, it's like like uh, Bernard's Loop is, I mean, it goes around the entire constellation. The thing is huge. So it's nice having a big wide field of view where you can see like the, the Witch's Head Nebula. Or, you know, you can get, sometimes even get the Horsehead Nebula and Orion Nebula in the same field of view, which is incredible. Because it really gives, you know, some context to not just scale and size, but, you know, where these things are relative to each other within the constellation. So hang on, the field of view in that Vixen is such that you can get both the Sword of Orion in the field of view and the easternmost star of the belt in there? Yeah. That's where the oh, horse yeah. head is. Okay. Yeah, wow. well, it's a fast scope. And even though it's a small scope, it has a huge rear element. So you can put, uh, you know, massive sensors. I mean, you can it can support medium format sensors behind it. So you get just incredible fields of view out of it. 
What about any aberrations? Do you see anything like, you know, are the stars pinpoints at the edge of the, of the field? Is there any chromatic aberration? Or, I mean, what are the what are the stars like in a scope like that? No, some of these high-end refractors, um, you know, even though they're small scopes, they, they've really nailed it. Um, the FSQ-106 from Takahashi is just like that. I mean, I use that one a lot too. Um, and these are, these are truly apochromatic. You don't have any chromatic aberration or anything like that. And out to the field of view that the, that these are supported. I mean, even up to, I think 70 millimeter image circle on the VSD and the, the FSQ 106 is even bigger. You know, you can put these big medium format chips and the stars at the edge are still perfect. So there's no issues. It's not, yeah, it's not like some of the smaller scopes we try to get away or some of the, you know, the, the less expensive scopes. That's where you really get that savings is that rear element being a little bit smaller, your image circle decreasing some, and then not getting the perfect correction out to the edges. That's that's where you really see the difference. So the image plane is 70 millimeters? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, on that VSD. It's big. That's huge, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what? so tell us a little bit about your camera, Sam. What, what's, a good, what's a good camera for something like that? Well, right now I am doing some testing. So I've been using CCD forever, but... Uh, ZWO and QHY just put out these chips with over 60 megapixels on them, the ZWO 6200 and the QHY 600. And so I've got these things out there and I'm just starting to do the testing with it, but this is extremely promising. I mean, I, uh, I kind of made mention of this in one of the previous podcasts, but you know, my refractor out in, in one of the OPT observatories has a huge 50 megapixel CCD chip on it, but at the time when we were going, like the idea was we were, we were trying to do some of the highest resolution stuff out there in these big mosaics. And so we needed this, this high resolution sensor, but that was before these CMOS chips came out that were, you know, there's 60 megapixels on a full frame chip. It really makes it easy. And it's, it's like $4,000 compared to the CCD versions that would get you these, these kind of resolutions would have been, you know, 15 to $20,000. So why? Why is there such a big difference in price? CMOS is generally just a lot less expensive for, you know, the resolution. The pixels are a little bit smaller, you know, because you you run out of real estate. You're, you've only got the full frame chip and you're cramming 60 million pixels on it. So they have to be pretty small to do that. But, you know, you can bend, you can do whatever you need to, to get that pixel size up and to get your image scale right. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's really promising, and the data that I've seen coming from it so far is just—I mean, it, it's incredible. For four thousand dollars, you're getting a twenty thousand dollar image easily. Wow, that's amazing. Is the data size comparable from a CMOS chip to that from a CD, CCD? Because we've talked about this also in previous podcasts, where you know the the size of a seventy megapixel image is is huge because you've got the seventy megapixels times whatever the bit depth is, let's say it's a 12 bit processor in there, you know, that'd be 70 megapixels times 12. That's a lot of data. That's a big file size. So are the file sizes comparable uh, with CCDs versus CMOS cameras? Uh, Yeah. And you know, I don't know exactly what it is because I haven't even looked at the, um, the file sizes on any of them. I'm running them on the Eagle units from Prima uh, Prima Luce. And so those Uh are those uh, computers that you have mounted to the scope, you know, Right. Um, yeah, those are really and nice. So, right, right. Yeah, definitely. I love it. It's it's completely changed the way I've been doing imaging. But um, it's pretty, I mean, one of the benefits is that I'm not constantly going in and looking at my data until I've got it all because it all just sits there on the computer. I have a, uh, a thumb drive on it that's just a, a big hard drive that I store everything on and I don't take it out until the whole thing's done, ready to go and ready to be processed on the, the Mac. So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure the files are huge, but I don't know exactly how big they are yet. I was trying to find here uh, exactly what the bit depth was because I think it's I think it's actually higher than what you mentioned. Well, I just pulled that out. I don't know what the bit depth are. They, you know, there were there have been many CCDs or around 12, 12 bit of data floats. By the way, not well. No, I guess it depends. It depends on the the, the way that it's read out, whether it's a float or whether it's an uh, an integer. But if it's an if it's yeah, a it's float, a then six, it's really huge. It's sixteen bit. Anyway, nerd stuff. Nerd, yeah, <laughs> nerd stuff. But yeah, the files are going to be big. And, so it's two to sixteen uh, power. Look. For those of you who don't know, just uh, do that in your calculator. I'll tell you what the uh, that's the that's the range of values that. Uh, or the number of uh, values that the uh, each pixel can hold, and you multiply that by how many pixels you've got, and that's the size of your file. So it's huge. 
Okay, well, we kind of got off on that a little bit. We were talking about the yeah. Orion Nebula. Got kind of got yeah. geeked out on some on some gear there, which we're going to probably do as we talk about these things. But um, so the Orion Nebula, very prominent in February skies. It's in the Sword of Orion for those of you who are brand new and just trying to get into this. And um, so you like to use refractors on imaging it. Yeah, and you know yeah. I. Um... I am shooting the horse every year. I shoot the horse head every single year. So I'm one of those people contributing to the 300,000 horse head and Orion Nebula images that are going to go out. That's right. But, um, you know, the first time I shot the horse head in California, I was using a Teleview refractor, a Teleview, uh, NP 127. And, um, I was really just testing a mount. I wasn't even really trying to get an image, but I was sitting outside with Travis Burke. We had a fire going and we were just running this thing and it was in between, uh, San Diego and LA. And, um, you know, we had this running all night. And then when I started looking at the data, I just liked the framing. I was like, Oh, this is cool. It's kind of like in portrait mode instead of landscape, you know, if that's such a thing in space. But, um, the image ended up going kind of viral and it's definitely my most shared image ever, but this thing has ended up everywhere. It's been shared to like all these really large accounts. And, uh, it's just a, a really wide shot of the horse head and flame nebula kind of turned at 90 degrees to show how much nebulosity is actually above it. But what's amazing about it is as I started doing that, I started shooting panels around that shot. And that's something I've never posted. But I, I, once I realized how much data was actually there, like how much nebulosity was in that region, I just started shooting the areas next to the picture itself just to see what else was there. There's really not a place in Orion where you shoot where you don't find some nebulosity. I mean, the entire constellation is full of nebulosity, the entire chunk of sky. It's amazing. And one of the reasons I think that that's gotten so popular, I've seen it, it's a beautiful image, is that and there's nothing, it's one of those that that we all see the Horsehead Nebula really super up close so that we can see the Horsehead part, right? But when you back up a little bit and you give it a little bit more sky, um, then you get some some more context and perspective of what that whole region of the sky is. And it really is striking to be able to see the the, ne the all of the nebulosity that's surrounding this region. So it's really quite amazing. Now, one of the things that my role here in this in this podcast is that I'm the sort of the observer. I've always taken the the side of the person who looks through an eyepiece. And when we look in the constellation of Orion, of which there is a lot of really great things to see through an eye an eyepiece, the Orion Nebula is a visual object. You can see it very nicely with a good eyepiece. A uh, plossel, a 26 millimeter plossel, be just fine in all telescopes. I have yet to see a telescope that wouldn't show it to you. You'll see a sort of a green hue of the nebula itself, and it'll be very fuzzy and faint. It won't be as anything like what you see in a even a short exposure image with maybe taken through a smartphone. But the Horsehead Nebula, by comparison, is not a visual object. You really can't see it in the uh, eyepiece. It's just too faint. Yeah, and you'd have to have some dark skies and a big scope. That's right. So that's always been that's always been a photographic object or in now an image object because you can't see it with your naked eye. Uh, so that's sort of a, an observer's perspective on this. It's spectacular through an eyepiece. The the Orion Nebula is anyway. Yeah, the horse head itself is really kind of like it's a backlit silhouette. Anyway, you know of of just this dark space. Um, you're really like kind of seeing the light behind it. And so imaging it, it's it's one of the more unique objects for that reason. But visually, that makes it extremely challenging to see. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, if you want to know some of the science behind this, the, the Orion Nebula is part of what they call the Orion Molecular Cloud Complex. And that's this huge star-forming region that includes the Orion Nebula and the Horsehead Nebula. It's where stars are being born. And uh, it's very active and, of course, very, very large. Most of what you see in the Horsehead Nebula are is H2. And that's the uh, hydrogen molecule that you're looking at that's being reflected from nearby stars. In particular, I think it's the easternmost star in Orion's belt. Uh, is that Zeta Orionis? I think so. And that you have to, in order to actually image it properly, and you tell me if this is what you do, Dustin, but in order to image the, the horse head properly, you have to actually get that star out of the field of view. You can't have it in there. Uh, otherwise, it'll just blow out your image. Is that correct? 
with luminance, yeah, it can become yeah. a problem if you're doing really long exposures. But um, most of, well, actually, all of the shots I have of it are narrowband shots. So it doesn't, you know, the the super bright stars become kind of a non-issue okay. when you're shooting right. narrowband, especially at three nanometers. I mean, you're cutting so much light out that all stars become small with narrowband. Okay. Well, let's talk about filters since you brought that up. Yeah. So obviously, we've t you've told us what kind of telescopes you like to use. I mean, there's nothing precluding you from using a nice re refractor or, a, I'm sorry, a reflector, a Dobsonian or something like that, especially to visually look at it. But you like to use refractors. You also use the CMOS chips. Uh, you're experimenting with them. Mm -hmm. What kind of filters would be great for these objects? I use a lot of equipment, and it's it's kind of the the joy of the hobby. Is it, for me is it, I've always liked the equipment. I like seeing the new stuff. I like seeing what's coming out and how far the manufacturers are pushing things. And so, um, you know, filters are one of the places that over the last five or so years, it, it's just been you know huge leaps forward. I mean, you've got these very very high transmission extremely narrow filters that allow you to really cut through a lot of the light pollution and get a lot of signal on the target, you know, relatively quickly. I say that, I mean, a lot of my exposures are still five minutes plus, and most of them are actually 30 minutes plus. But when you consider the how much signal is coming through from San Diego, it's like, that's, that's not something to complain about. Oh, I had to wait five minutes to see this thing that's, you know, 5,000 light years away in high resolution, this much detail, you know? So it's the filtration that's that's made that possible and made these really long exposures possible. But um, yeah, most of the filters I use are hydrogen, sulfur, and oxygen filters, and they are always below five nanometers, but uh, generally I use three nanometer filters, which... I believe is the same uh, nanometer that Hubble has on its narrowband filters. Mm -hmm. It's three I nanometers. Think it's, so. I think it's three, yeah. Well, yeah, what do so you it's mean by narrow. bandpass? You're, yeah, well, what does that mean, narrow? And why is that better than, than not narrow? Well, the idea is, like, filters don't bring something in. They keep things out, right? It's not like they're pulling in something extra, which is kind of uh, counterintuitive because you think, like, oh, well... I want a red filter. So this is going to go out and gather all the red light for me and bring it in. That's not what's happening. It's just keeping every other color out except red. And so um, with narrowband, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I know I want red, but outside of the broadband of just red, I don't want the whole spectrum of red. I want just this very, very narrow sliver of red that isn't being put off by the street lamps around me. It's not being put off by the car light driving by. The only thing it's being put off by are these emission nebula that are just cranking out this hydrogen. You know, um, that, that hydrogen light is what I want. I want that, just that specific wavelength. So if I can cut everything else out, even though I'm cutting my light down by, you know, 99% plus, I am only getting the signal from the target itself. So I can shoot right past the street lamp cut all of that light out, it's not going to make it to my sensor because that filter is going to reject it. But the light that's coming from the Horsehead Nebula, now all of that is getting through. So that's the idea is to isolate exactly the, you know, the bandpass that you want that's in the target. And so that's what a hydrogen filter does because most of this stuff, hydrogen being the simplest element, is everywhere. You find it everywhere out in the universe. So it's really easy to find targets to shoot with a hydrogen filter. And in star-forming regions, like what I was just telling you about this Orion molecular cloud complex, H2, a hydrogen 2 molecule, uh, is, is the what that means when you say you're looking at something in hydrogen or in sulfur or in oxygen. You're looking at the light, the photons that have been excited by the molecules in that star-forming region. They give off light at very specific wavelengths. And in the case of hydrogen atoms... When they are excited and they and they give off photons for you to then look at through your filter, it's done at very specific wavelengths, generally in the red part of the spectrum. I think it's 65, 62 nanometers and the or 65, 62 angstroms. And so a hydrogen filter will throw away all of the light in the spectrum, except for three nanometers worth <laughs> wide of the light given off by that hydrogen. That's why when you look at it through uh, a filter 
the Horsehead Nebula and others like it need to be something called emission nebulas. These are nebulae that give off their own light. And that's why you want to look at those photons that are emitted by that nebula. And so when you look at it through, say, a filter like a hydrogen filter or even the, the uh, um, triad filter, which I think we'll talk about in just a minute, it, it can look at the photons that are given off by those atoms only. So, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's huge. And they're also different colors. I think oxygen is more green. Is that right? Yeah, it's like blue-green. and um, yeah, sort of a blue-greenish. Right, exactly. Hydrogen is red, and I don't know what sulfur is off the top of my head. Sulfur is also red. Is it? Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of a little of the science about how these filters work. And what and they throw away, like like Dustin said, all that light. You're just and so that includes light pollution, which is very valuable. So, uh, getting rid of all that crap, you can see only the stuff that the uh, Horsehead Nebula is giving off, or the Orion Nebula, which is giving off more light of different wavelengths. But um, um, but you, so those are the filters that you use. Can we talk a little bit about your, your triad filter? Because that's really an amazing thing. Yeah. I'm actually using that now as like, even on my monochrome cameras, I'm using it as my luminance filter. So if you think about it, like all the luminance filter is when we're talking about filtration, we're saying, okay, you're going to take all of the visible spectrum and then divide that. You've got red light, blue light, and green light based on, you know, how compressed the wavelength is, you know, red being obviously the longest wavelength. And then inside of each of those, you can find narrowish slivers, which you would call narrow band, which is like hydrogen, sulfur, oxygen, those things. But what if you just want to shoot red, green, and blue, get a true color image of all the visible spectrum, but then you want to shoot one filter that allows all of it to pass through at once, the red, green, and blue, so that you can get just all of the light that's actually there to brighten up the image and to get the maximum amount of, amount of detail. Because obviously, when you consider like what is a red filter, it's a rejection filter. Yeah, you're rejecting three, you know, or uh, two thirds of the light. You're rejecting the green and the blue, and the same thing when you're using the other filters. So why not have one filter where you can bring in all the light so that the same ten minutes you're getting, you know, two thirds more light than you would if you were rejecting down to just one color. And so that's what a luminance filter does. It allows you to capture all the light in the same amount of time that you would. With like a red filter, you would have to do at least three times as much time or or more, probably more. And so we never really had that for narrowband. Everybody was just shooting uh, hydrogen, sulfur, and oxygen. And so you never really had a luminance filter, but it dawned on us. We created the triad filter to be for color cameras so that people could do, you know, it has it has four band passes on the triad ultra. It's hydrogen, uh, hydrogen alpha, hydrogen beta oxygen three and sulfur two all on one filter. And so you can let all of that pass through on one filter. And then we realized we don't have to just use this on color cameras. Why don't we put this as our L channel, as luminance for narrowband so that when I go out and I shoot hydrogen, sulfur, and oxygen, now I can shoot hydrogen, sulfur, and oxygen and H beta all at the same time and have a luminance filter for this. And that's what I've been doing. And I mean, if you look at my most recent posts compared to posts even, I don't know, two months ago, they look completely different. I mean, it stepped the images up, you know, tenfold. By just doing having, that luminance. By doing that luminance. Yeah, channel. I mean, just the amount of detail that's coming through in the images, even when I'm processing the raw detail, it's just insane how much you actually get through when you allow all of those channels to come through at the same time. That same 30-minute exposure looks like you did, you know, 15 of them. It's it's amazing how much detail is there in the core of these things. I've even been shooting galaxies that way. And if you look at, like, my most recent uh, M101 uh, post, I mean, you can see nebulae all the way through the galaxy, and I've I've never shot it like that. You know, I've always been amazed that you could see any nebulae in another galaxy, but this thing is just riddled with nebulae. And um, it's it's really a, a pretty amazing thing to have a luminance filter for narrowband. Now you have, there's two different versions of the triad, right? There's the triad and then there's the ultra. And the difference, I think, is just the bandpass. Is that right? Yeah. So the triad was the original development. And um that was the one it took so long to get right. The triad is basically like a 
a broader version of what the Triad Ultra became. You know, you've got a three nanometer HA, but then the other channels are a little bit wider so that you can allow in all of that blue green, really with the idea of maximizing the limitation or uh, maximizing the ability and kind of like minimizing the, the limitations of a color camera because color cameras already have rejection filters on them. That's the thing that people have to keep in mind is that when you're using a camera like a, like a Sony or a Nikon or a Canon or even a color a DSLR, or CMOS, yeah. yeah, DSLR, these are color sensors. That's why when you take a picture, you see it in color and it doesn't just show up in black and white, is that they already have rejection filters on them. And what it does is it says for every four pixels, it just has a repeating pattern. So it's red, green, green, blue over and over again. And so it's rejecting light. If, if blue light hits that red pixel, it's not getting through. So the camera, after you take the picture, has to guess. And what it does is it just it guesses mathematically. So we had red light hit here in this amount. We had red light hit here in this amount. We can guess at how much red light would have hit on those green and blue pixels in between. And so it guesses. It's called interpolation. And then it, uh, it produces your color image, and that's what it shows you. The difference shooting monochrome is that there's no guessing. You put a red filter over the whole thing, and you know you got all the red light. And then same thing with green and blue, and you combine those together, and that's why your signal goes up so much. But then, of course, it's a lot more complex. I mean, you have to have a filter wheel. You have to process all these together, and it's just not as quick or as simple as just taking an image in color. So, you know, it's kind of this which one is better. It's, it's really hard to say, you know. D better th for different people, right? One's better for a person looking for simplicity. The other's better for a person looking for maximum image quality. But anyway, uh, with color sensors, I mean, people are using the triad mostly because they don't want to limit as much light going through. They want to start with something that allows a little bit more light to go through unless they are really in a light polluted area. That's where the triad ultra came in. So we thought, well, what about people that, that don't, live, you know, 20 miles from the city, but they're just right outside the city and they've got football stadiums nearby and they got other things with, you know, they got cars driving by. What about the people that really have a light pollution problem? You know, basically everybody east of the Mississippi river. It's yeah, like, yeah. if you are east of the Mississippi river, look at a light pollution map, just Google a uh, light pollution map of the United States and look at every single place east of the Mississippi river it, it makes you realize for those of us that are out here, how spoiled we really are. I mean, we drive 20 minutes and we're in darker skies than exist east yeah. of the Mississippi the, river. The desert and, skies are still, they're still King. Absolutely King. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, um, it's really sad that, that light pollution has become such a problem, but that's where the triad ultra came in is we just thought all of these people have this issue that we've got to find a way around. And the triad just is not enough. It's still too broad. It's going to let too much in, for people that are really trying to get these high signal images. So we got to get, we got to get it down to where every channel is like four nanometers where no, none of that light pollution is coming through. And that's what we did. So we, we tried to compromise on, um, you know, right on that line in between how narrow we could go, but then still be wide enough to allow for minimal shift for super fast scopes like the Rasa, you know, at F 2.2, there's a little bit of band shift moving that fast. So that's why we settled on four nanometers is that allows people to use it with really, really fast scopes, but also, and you can use it with slow scopes as well, but that way you can, it's really versatile. It can be used with pretty much anything, but you can also still block out all of the light pollution. You know, we shot this thing from Times Square, so your backyard's definitely not brighter than that. <laughs> right, uh, right. And, uh, that, that's where the triad ultra came in, but you know, it, uh, it really, it, it served that pur purpose extremely well, and that's still what it's used for uh, primarily. But man, as a luminance filter, it's it's been a game changer. While we're on the topic of filters, it seems like I'm not as as avid an imager as you are. I certainly don't have access to the the triads yet. And when I hear you talk about imaging uh, using these filters, you're generally talking about nebulae. How do these filters work, not just the triad, but other filters on galaxies? And is there any kind of filter that would help with, say, the planets as well? Yeah, so a lot of people shoot, um, I'll, I'll start with the galaxies. A lot of people yeah. are still shooting galaxies with hydrogen filters primarily. Most of the time they don't do oxygen or sulfur. There's just not much there to see. And 
galaxies are really, really small. I mean, they're not, they're huge, right? But, but from our perspective, they're very small in the night sky. And so you have to have a ton of focal length to reach out there and get an image of them compared to, you know, say something like the North American nebula that just stretches across huge chunks of the sky. You can shoot with a small refractor to get the same kind of uh, field of view on, you know, most of these galaxies, you'd have to have a 20 inch scope or bigger. And so, um, really where people are doing good work with narrowband filters on something other than emission nebulae are the big galaxies like Andromeda, you know, or, uh, M101, things like that, to where from our perspective, the galaxy is still a big chunk of sky. And, uh, the images don't look like typical galaxy images because you're really highlighting the nebulosity in the galaxy. So instead of just seeing the stars, which is really the images that, you know, everybody's come to know and love of galaxies where you just see that this thing is just a wall of stars, hundred billion plus stars in Andromeda, you know, 200 billion stars. But Instead, when you shoot it with a filter like this, what you're seeing is all of those red nebulae all over this thing, just splattered throughout this entire galaxy, which really gives you perspective because from where we are and we have our Horsehead Nebulae and the, or Nebula and the Orion Nebula, all of this stuff looking around the sky and they're everywhere. You look at another galaxy and you see those and you realize if we were in that galaxy, these would be our Horsehead and our Orion and all of these things. And we're seeing them from here you know we're seeing it 28 million light years away and like the whirlpool galaxy we are seeing other nebulae it's it's really fascinating when you break it down you think these aren't just ideas these aren't just scientific concepts these are places you know these are and go ahead i'm sorry go ahead oh just i mean it just fascinates me that this is like It's not real in the way that we think of like, oh, you know, this is just, this is a real idea. Like, like electrons are real, you know, and saying, yes, they are. But these aren't, these aren't things that we in no way can ever be a part of. Like humanity will eventually learn to travel great distances in space. And these are places that we can go, you know, not just not just concepts and, and things that uh, we use to, to describe or understand a reality. I mean, these are, these are actual places. And another thing that the technology of today makes possible, and I, I, I think this is something that's among my most favorite things to look at online, is when not just the professionals, like people who are using Hubble and all of those guys are doing, but, but amateurs are doing the same kind of thing out using equipment like what you're just talking about, is to take composite images look at the andromeda galaxy through a i guess white light just just maybe a normal just with no filters and then take a bunch of images at these various wavelengths and then superimpose them on uh on top of each other and you know it's amazing the detail that pops out and the kind of images that you see it's not realistic in the sense that you can't see all of these wavelengths individually through your eye uh and especially if you happen to be lucky enough to get down into the infrared but the the results are quite striking don't you think if you could just add all of these images up here's my white light photo of the andromeda galaxy or m101 or whatever it is and then you add in these different wavelengths that highlight those structures you were just talking about they make beautiful images they make really nice images And that's something that is really not easy to do, at least it hasn't been. But now that we have the software and registering of capabilities and all of this stuff to put things on top of each other, it really is, I think, about as trivial as it's ever going to get. Yeah, and on the Gibson Picks page on Instagram, I like to post uh, the filters individually sometimes in the stories where you can see each of them and then you see the combined image. So you can see, hey, here's just the red light from this image. Here's just the green. Here's just the sulfur or whatever. And then when you see them start to be combined, you can see it kind of like like what's actually happening. Because a lot of people still ask me if I'm just like painting these images in Photoshop or something, if it's fake, you know, if it's like, well, yeah, but how much of that is processing? It's like, well, a lot of it is processing. But what that means to each of us is probably different. Like I'm not, I'm not starting with some blank canvas in Photoshop and painting this stuff in. I'm not creating these colors what I'm doing is just amplifying the color that's there with like a saturation slider or the same thing you would do to edit your photo of the beach. 
It's not like, you know, I'm not yeah. drawing this. I, I, I hear you. I get what you're, you, it's, there's this weird attachment by some people. There's the, like a, a, a purity in an unprocessed image that I've never understood. Have you ever seen an unprocessed image? They look like crap. You've got to do something with them to be able to see anything at all. Um, but, but there's like, oh, that's overprocessed or you processed, or this is a false image or, you know, false color images really piss people off, you know? And you're like, well, wait a minute, this, you know, nobody's making things up. They're bringing out the data that are there. But if you just want to see a raw image, you're going to, especially for something like in a space telescope, you're just going to see cosmic rays. You're going to see satellite trails. You're going to see sky fog, sky background, internal reflections in the telescope, <laughs> you know, that stuff's got to get taken out or you're not going to see yeah. anything. So there's this weird sort of romanticism about an unprocessed image I've never understood. I have um, to go back after each of my images and add in like the curvature of the earth, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, no. Add in the little alien that you took out because, you know, it's like, of course there was one. You're just yeah. hiding it from us. Thank oh, you, shit. Let me get that healing brush. I got to get rid of that alien. <laughs> That's right. Uh, damn it. Another, another one. Yeah. Damn aliens are all up in my, yeah. in my grill here. I got to get them out of my images. <laughs> People really do, though. People really do cling to, like, the, the purity of an image. And I've never really, I've never understood that. Yeah, me either. It's a, it's, it's a mystery to me, you know, working in science in the, in the, in the industry and with professional astronomers, they don't get it either. And it's like, well, you know, they want, they, people insist on seeing the raw data because there's this implication that NASA's hiding something. And so they want to see what NASA's actually hiding, but you show them a raw image and it looks like it does. And you're like, Whoa, that's, that's garbage. And I said, well, you wanted yeah. to see the raw image. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, know. I love, you know, I'll have somebody like at a star party. Sometimes, you know, people uh people will question me on on that kind of stuff like how much i'm faking it i guess and it's like they'll come up and they'll have their canon camera with them and then they'll they'll ask me if i'm making this up because i'm processing it and it's like do you know how much processing is happening happening inside your camera every time you push that button like this is a digital yeah. image by definition it is processed by definition. And compressed. I mean, if it's exactly. JPEG, it's also compressed, which means they've thrown away data. <laughs> it, so, is, yeah. it is making up data for you. It is adding color all over this image, making it yeah. up. Your image is way more processed than mine. Way yep, more processed. Right. Your image of your dog is way more processed than any of my images of space. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's... I, 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 it's just the times we live in, I guess, you know, people just distrust everything. Everything is fake. Um, I tend to be, you can tell an overprocessed image. I mean, I'm, I'm a, my, my thing, more sort of my calling card. You could always tell a Tony Darnell processed image is I love the freaking Sobel filter, man. I crank that thing up. That's edge detection. Yeah. I'm like all about that. You're like, whoa, <laughs> love that solar, that Sobel filter. Don't you? Like, yeah. Your image has Sobel. like cliffs. It looks like you could fall <laughs> off of. That's right. You're like, damn, man. You might want to. You might want to calm down a little bit on that slider. No, man. I'm done. I'm gonna crank that up. <laughs> you have to push it all the way and save the image, so you can open up the new file and crank it up again, <laughs> and then do that one again. That's right. Just keep on going. <laughs> Ain't nothing but edges on this one. I can't help it. I just love the 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 detail and the contrast that comes out of a soap filter so i i overdo it but anybody who knows anything about anything can tell that's what i've done right i mean like yeah wow that's a interesting picture uh, there's there, another tony darnell <laughs> image man it looks like you could cut yourself on it <laughs> that's right i'm looking for smiley faces in my images right i'm looking for all kinds of, in in the in the in the edges of my images yeah so. You know, I had I had one of my friends call me, and he was making fun of my images, and he's like, he's like, man, I hope you like them extra crispy, because Dustin's been cooking this one for days. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, your images are extra so crispy. overcooked. <laughs> I like color, man. I like the color, and uh, I like pushing the data, see what's there. You so know? you're all about that hue and the and the <laughs> what is it the saturation and all that? Huh? You like yeah. those sliders? <laughs> I don't. It's the saturation slider that I probably get a little carried away with. <laughs> it's yeah, man. Let's go out, with that. What are you doing? Slide that bitch over. <laughs> what starts out as a a faint beige ends up <laughs> ends up looking like a Monet, you know, yeah, right, or hot pink or something, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> God. 
<laughs> you know, it's interesting, Dustin. That's a cool picture. I didn't know there was a hot pink in the yeah. Orion Nebula, but yeah, you found it. Uh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, all those colors get blended and turn into something. But hey, I mean, look, it. Uh, you can see the raw data and you can see what's there after the fact. And the truth is, man, it's it's the same thing. If it was pink, it's a little bit brighter pink. If it was blue, it's a little bit brighter blue. But that's that's what's happening in the images. Okay, well, while we're talking about the things that are up in February, we've covered really well the Horsehead Nebula and the Orion Nebula, and I wanted to just give you a couple of little sciencey things about these two objects. First of all, the Orion Nebula is about about 24 light it's 24 light years across, so this thing is huge, and it has the mass within the molecular cloud itself uh, about 2,000 solar masses. Now, these are some of the, the facts that go along with the uh, Orion Nebula. It's 1,300 light years away. So when you look at it, the light that hits your detector has traveled 1,300 light years to get to you. And this thing is uh, really, really bright. Uh, it's uh, able to, like I said, you can see it with your naked eye. When you look at it through an eyepiece, the green color, I think you... I think the reason you see mostly green when you look at it with your eye is the fact that our eyes tend to be very tuned to that color. We're a little bit more sensitive to green than we are some of the other wavelengths. But as Dustin pointed out with the triad, you can see it on all these other wavelengths like uh, sulfur and oxygen and hydrogen. So uh, lots of things going on there. Uh, and so it's uh, about a plus four magnitude. So that means that you can definitely see this uh, on a dark night with your naked eye, but it's, like I said, it's more of just a, a smudge in the middle star of the uh, sword of uh, the belt of Orion. And the Horsehead Nebula, it's also 1,300 or so light years away. And uh, it's, as we talked about, part of that same complex. Stars are being formed in this region of the sky. And it is one of the most prolific areas of stars, star-forming regions that we know of. And uh, so the... Milky Way galaxy itself, on average, this was kind of a surprise to me when I learned about it, really there's only about one star per year being formed uh, at the current rate of star formation in our galaxy. Uh, that's a little bit greater here in this region of the sky. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it is a very active star forming region. And it's um, about seven light years across. So re it's really big. Uh, that region that where the horse head uh, you start with the horse head, it's about three and a half light years off in radius from either side of that. So seven light years across. Well, you An said so one star per year is what is being formed in the Milky Way? Yeah, that's the star forming rate on average <laughs> in our galaxy. I don't um, know if that feels low or high. I mean, it. you think about like what goes well, into making a star. Well, it was a lot higher a in the past. It, it was a lot higher in the past. It, it's a fairly substantial construction project, I'd imagine, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta you gotta wait a while. <laughs> you get all this gas, you smoosh it together, and then you sit and wait. <laughs> I'm just saying, you're, you're saying it like you're disappointed. You're like, it's only one one a year that this galaxy's cranking yeah. out. It's like, well, it's a pretty that's a pretty big project. Well, okay. Well, I guess I'll give it some slack then. Nature, <laughs> but um, I better I better double check that. But that's my that was I was just seeing a, a talk from the AAS uh, this last week on it. Yeah, that's I, where that number comes from. I hope, I hope you I double check that, right. man. You're gonna get overwhelmed in your inbox with actuallys. Yeah, actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm well, glad let me you just, said that, me, not me. Yeah, really. <laughs> so anyway, that's a little bit of the uh, science behind some of these objects. Um, one of the things about February, the reason it's my least favorite month, among a lot of reasons, but uh, it's uh, really, really, really cold. Not so much in Florida in the past as it does get that cold, but it does get the coldest of the year in February here. But I've lived in other areas of the country where I thought I was going to die. It was so cold in February. Uh, Illinois comes to mind. Colorado, I lived for 30 years. It was very, very, very cold up there. And um, I don't know, should we tell people what we do to stay warm out there or, or, or um, do we want to not give away our secrets on this? I mean, I imagine what you do, Dustin, is you go and you <laughs> log into your computer <laughs> and in your nice toasty office and you say, please take a picture of the Horsehead Nebula for me. And then uh, you go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, no, I've been setting up. I have a system at home on wheels that I roll out of my garage. And, yeah, that's uh, a nice scope. I've, I've seen it. 
Yeah. And so I, I do some imaging on that uh, all the time, actually. I set that thing up just probably three or four times a week. Um, and then, yeah, the other ones run all the time. But those are, it, it's a completely different experience, it's almost like a different hobby, you know, because I'm, I'm logging into those and watching the data roll in. But you're a little bit removed of it, when, removed from it when the Texas or the scope is in Texas and you're sitting in California or the scope is, you know, in 90 miles away out in the desert Joshua tree. Well, when I go out, I do it hardcore. I have to look through an IP, so I can't like, you know, do it from remote distance. And when I take it out, um, I, it's just all about parkas, man. I would, even if it was only like 40 degrees outside at night, I would still dress like it's below zero because when you're just standing around in the cold night, uh, doing nothing, but looking through an eyepiece, you get cold really fast. So, uh, I just park up and do all kinds of, you know, three or four pairs of socks and mittens and gloves and all that stuff. And I sit out there shivering like crazy, uh, looking through my little eyepiece. So that's about the only real tip I can give you. I, you just got to suck it up and do it. I always kind of assumed that you did your uh, visual astronomy nude. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> that was, <laughs> luckily it is dark. Um, that was, yeah, that was when I was younger. You're right. I would go out and just, uh, and you know, and uh, <laughs> jingle jangle out there and just go. Another, <laughs> another Florida man story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Florida man arrested for observing Nate nude through his telescope. I'm sure it's happened. Positive. All right, so I just looked it up. Milky Way churns out seven new stars per year, scientists say. This is dated back. It's a NASA article dated 1506. I love so that. Seven scientists stars per year. Say. Scientists, scientists say. say. You, you, take, you attach that to any, anything <laughs> if you want people to believe it, man. Tony observes in the nude, scientists say. <laughs> Nobody knows who the scientists are, but they say right. it, Damon. <laughs> scientists say. Well, there you go. You just heard it from the Goddard Space Flight Center. Seven stars per year. I thought it was I thought the guy told me last week it was one, but I must have been like on drugs or something. So Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Well, is there anything else we want to cover on this one, Dustin? No, no. I think we covered a lot. We covered um, we did. two nebulae. <laughs> two. In an hour. That's right. Forget everything else. <laughs> just do those two. All right? Yeah. Don't bother with the rest. All right? right. Just do those two. We'll talk we... about the other ones in March. All right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've got your homework. Now go do it. That's right. Now go down. We want to see them. Post them and tag Gibson Picks and Deep Astronomy on Instagram. Let us see them. And we'll talk about them and uh, c we'll critique your filter usage. If I don't see any Sobel filters in there, you're not going to get a very good grade from me. And if you're not playing with the saturation, Justin's going to be like, nah. Not. So, so show us your images on Instagram. Yeah, let's see them. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll just close this one out and uh, we'll uh, talk to you guys next week. I want to thank you all so much for listening. I'm Tony Darnell and my co-host is Dustin Gibson. And thank you all again for listening. As always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. 